Well, this morning we open the very fascinating subject of election and predestination. These are topics that come up over and over and over again, both in Scripture and in discussion with you all. I can't tell you how many times I've talked about this subject with you, and and for good reason. It is one of those subjects that really messes with our brain, (laughs) messes with our soul, because we know, on the one hand, almost intuitively, that God has to be in charge, right? He's in control of all things. Everything that's happening is somehow part of a plan, and yet we have this sense, and a very real sense, that when we go out and do something, we are the ones legitimately doing it. And especially when it comes to sin, that we certainly cannot blame God or Satan or someone else for the evil that we do. So on the one hand, I'm not going to pretend like I'm going to somehow resolve all of these questions for you, um, especially since we've had kind of, you know, even when Pastor Dennis was here, we've addressed this so many times. I know if your mind is set on a certain way of thinking through this, you're likely not, not going to change it no matter uh, what is said. But uh, at least let me say this. Let's agree that there's going to be some mystery here because the very nature of existence, like this reality that we live in, there are some things about it that are going to exceed our minds, necessarily so. I mean, they say that the universe is expanding. What is it expanding into? I mean, just stuff like that ought to make you feel at least a little bit humble. So if we can be humbled at the thought of, you know, if the universe is indeed expanding, what's expanding into uh, uh, different, you know, issues of time, space, light behaves like a, a particle and a wave and all these things. Can we have a little bit of humility when it comes to the sovereignty of God and our own culpability for our actions? And with that humility, can we say or at least agree, as we've been saying, as we started Ephesians, that ultimately the fundamental purpose, even if the fundamental nature of this reality is just somewhat mysterious, we'll never get to the bottom of it, can we at least agree that one thing is clear, that the fundamental purpose of existence is the glory of God? Let us at least agree on that, even if we don't agree about the particulars of how, you know, sovereignty and... And, uh, and our will um, happen to coexist. Uh, it, it's a necessary thing. And I, I've said this before, but uh, the reason that the purpose of this existence is the glory of God is because we believe that there is a God. If there is an absolute, monotheistic, sovereign, one and only creator of the universe, then necessarily everything that exists must be an extension of uh, a reflection of who he is. And that's all we're talking about when we're talking about the glory of God. It's just to see God as he is, as he truly is. And to glorify God is simply to, for us to acknowledge and see and grow in perceiving God as he truly is. So necessarily, the praise of his glory is the true answer to the question for everything. For rainbows and stubbed toes, architecture and uh, short stories, cute little babies, and even horrific murders. We have to believe, even if we can't fathom or truly, truly grasp how, but we must agree that there is a purpose and a meaning, meaning, namely his glory. 
Everything is necessarily contingent on him existing. The existence exists because God exists, and therefore it extends, reflects his attributes, his character, even sin and hell communicate things about his justice, his holiness, even his mercy. Now, I know that's pretty philosophical for a Sunday morning, especially when the kids are in here. But let me say this. This, These kids that are in here right now, you know, my daughter included, statistically, they leave the church by the time they're in the middle of college. And it's because churches don't talk about stuff like this. The things that truly dig down deep into the soul. And so if we push our brains and our hearts a little bit this morning, I think that's okay. Even for the the younger ones, this is important things because they think there's no answer to these questions. And then when they ask their parents, they say, ask your pastors. And then the pastors, since they've been punting on this question, don't answer it, they leave the faith. I've heard that story. I heard it from, a, from an atheist at UCI who used to be Catholic. He had these questions when he was young. You know, the priest didn't have any answer. He became an atheist. He uh, couldn't deal with the fact that there's no meaning or purpose to existence, so he got on medication. And by the time uh, I met him, um, he, he was just trying to get by, you know, each day. And that was his existence. We need to talk about this kind of stuff. Now, I think if that's your premise, everything exists for the glory of God ultimately. Even if you don't quite always understand how that works out, let's say logistically, I think that helps us understand or at least have election, uh, concepts like election and predestination kind of fall into place. If there's nothing accidental in this universe, and if everything has a purpose, somehow, some way, in this existence, because it depends upon God, it's, it, it's a, it reflects God, then our individual salvation is part of God's intent and purpose to glorify himself. Now, Ephesians chapter 1, 3, which we talked about two weeks ago, about how in Christ we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the first example of, and really the pinnacle example of the spiritual blessings of heaven is what Paul talks about in verse 4, namely our election. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This doctrine, which we're calling election, has a long history of, uh, of, uh, in, in theology, What we will do this morning is answer five questions about election that demonstrate God's glory. Five questions about election that demonstrate God's glory. Now understand we're just going to try and stick to the the text of Scripture this morning. I know you can get, again, very much into philosophy, but we're going to try to stick with Scripture. The first question is, who chose? Who did the choosing? This is the most important question to answer correctly. And to do this, we're going to have to talk about grammar. Your favorite subject, my favorite subject, grammar. All right? The Greek word here for choose is in what's called the middle voice. All right? Now, you have in in language, when you study language, you have tense, mood, 
and voice, all right? Tense would be like present tense, past tense. Mood would be like, is this a conditional? Is this, you know, active, like this is actually happening? Or is this potential, which is sometimes called the subjunctive mood? And then you have the voice. And the voice has to do with the way the subject is uh, relating to the verb in a sentence. Now, it, you, you, you're lost right now. I get it. You'll you understand when I use an example, <clears throat> all right? Typically, in English, we have the active voice, the passive voice. The active voice, Jack kicked the ball. So who did the kicking? Jack. Jack is the subject of the sentence, and it does the action of the sentence. Jack kicked the the ball. That's the active voice when the subject of the phrase does the action. Now, let's go with a passive voice. The passive voice, you would say, the ball was kicked. And you can say by Jack. What's the subject of the ball was kicked? The subject is the ball, but did it do the kicking? No. It was the thing that was kicked. It received the action. It didn't do the action. Does that make sense? So the active is when the subject does the action. Jack kicked the ball. So Jack, subject, kicked. He's the one that kicked. Passive is the ball was kicked. And that means that the subject received the action. It didn't do the action. Now, in Greek, there is another voice, and it's called the middle voice. In the middle voice, the subject does the action, but it also benefits or you could say receives the results of the action just like the ball receives the verb of of being kicked in the middle the subject either benefits from or suffers from you could say because if i was the one being kicked i wouldn't necessarily be benefiting i'd be suffering from it um the the action of the verb right and this is called the middle voice and it and it kind of adds a Subtle commentary in the action. So, for example, I could say, here's a, maybe a little bit of a difference from the passive voice and the middle voice. Let's say, let's say Jack here, he kicked the ball so hard, it went up in a tree. All right? So Jack went and Jack freed the ball. So that's a, it's kind of a funny verb because who, who did the action well, in a way, like Jack did the action and the ball also did, right? The ball uh, got freed. It, it's kind of a funny verb, right? Um, the middle is kind of that funny sense where Jack freed it, but he also benefited from the freeing of it. He freed it for himself. There's a little commentary in the middle. It's not just that the ball uh, mysteriously loosened itself from the branches, but the subject of the freeing also did it, but he did it for himself. He did it by himself, for himself, you could say. It's just a little bit of commentary. If that's a little bit hard to, um, to kind of conceptualize, that's okay. You, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, with Koine Greek, and you probably didn't either. But just understand there's a commentary to the middle voice that makes it something like, I did this because I want to get gain from it. I did this, and I am uh, benefiting from the consequences of it. So this word here for choose is in that voice. And if you wanted to kind of get the commentary out, you could translate it something like, God chose us for himself, for his own purposes, 
for no other reason than his own desire, good pleasure. The middle makes it very unlikely that God's choosing was based on some external factor. You know, that God chose us because, you know, he, he had to. He's being blackmailed, right? Or someone bribed him. No, no. The middle says God chose us not by force, not by coercion, not, by, not bound by some other reason or logic even. It, it is suggesting that when God chose, it was for his own enjoyment, his own benefit. And I know... I'm emphasizing that because it, 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 there are those who would try to define election as not so much God choosing us, but because God is timeless, he can look to see who will choose him, right? And then from eternity past, based on who is choosing him, he chooses us. Something like that. And I, I've heard literally that before uh, in sermons on this passage. And the, the problem with that is that, you know, the excuse is because God is outside of time. He's, he's still choosing us first chronologically. But, you know, he's way back here, you know, at the beginning of creation. And he looks down and he sees us choosing him. And then, oh, that's who I choose. But the middle precludes that. Because the middle voice is saying... God chose, and it wasn't dependent or contingent upon anyone or anything else. It would take away from the use of the middle voice. And it's frankly contradicted by very clear declarations of Scripture. John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples. In John chapter 15, verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Same word. Same voice, middle voice, and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So very, very clearly, you, you can't say that God looked down the quarters of time. He saw the disciples choosing him, and so therefore he chose them, um, you know, technically before he, they chose him, but it just, that's, that's a, I, I think, not a fair way to portray um, the very clear, very clear description here, and you could, we could do this over and over again, actually, throughout Scripture, that God chose and he chose for no other reason than his own good pleasure and his own purpose, his own benefit, his own design. So when we ask the very basic question of who chose who, the very clear testimony of the Bible is God chose even in the Old Testament, you go to Deuteronomy 7, 7, God chose Israel. And in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, they use the same verb in the middle voice for God choosing Israel. And the question is, why or how does that glorify God that he chose? Well, I, I think the point of divine election is to maximize the glory God receives in saving us and to maximize the praise that we give to him for saving us. Think of it this way. If God chose us because we were so wonderful and wise that we figured out that there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, that means that there's something in us that we could boast about. 
Oh, the reason God chose me is because I chose him. I figured it out. I, 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 I realized that, you know, uh, that, 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 you know, God is much better than all the things of this world. Now, it's, it's subtle because you do need to come to that realization. But the question is, does that realization come apart from God's own acting on our hearts or God's choosing us? You see, we want to, I want to give God the maximum amount of praise. I want him to have the maximum glory. And he gets the maximum glory when he gets to choose, when he alone is the only factor in his choosing. Now, again, we will talk about it later because we're only going to get to election today. We're going to talk about predestination probably for another couple sermons. So we'll elaborate on this. We'll talk about our actions and so on. But uh, the text is just so plain and so clear. And since the goal is to the praise of his glory, why do I argue? with the fact that he chose me. I, I don't need to argue about that. I, I just don't, I can't, I, I don't want to diminish God's glory in saving me. So I'm perfectly willing to say in me there was nothing, and we'll get to this in just a second, there's nothing worth choosing. He chose me because he chose me, not because I deserved it somehow, some way, or else I would have reason to boast I want to sing songs about how great he is, not how wise I was or how good and deserving I am. And you might think that's a silly thought, but I can't tell you how many praise songs amount to, I'm so great, I'm so wonderful, I'm going to do this for you, God, I do do this for you, I just, God, you love me uh, so much because I am so lovable. Well, that isn't the basis upon which God choose, chooses. In fact, we'll see just the opposite. What did God choose? It says here, God chose us, or he chose us. Who is us? <laughs> well, in the context, specifically, it's the church at Ephesus, right? The ones receiving this letter, but includes Paul as well. When he says us, he means himself, but clearly, he is also referring to all Christians as well. The verb, again, he chose, chose, the literal definition of it is typically used of selecting one group out of a larger group. What is the larger group from which the smaller group, us, was pulled out from? What is the larger subset? Well, the larger group is all of sinful humanity. Since the fall of mankind into sin, all humans have been subject to the wrath, the judgment of God. No one here has lived perfectly in every single way, every single thought and word and deed. No one here has lived that kind of perfectly righteous life. So we share this in common with all other humans who have ever lived. We are sinners. And we, because God is just, must be punished for all that wrongdoing. And all of us, we languish under this burden and weight of condemnation. Yet, God is gracious too. He is just, but he's also merciful. He pities us. And in a mystery again, that he would choose to save anyone at all. He doesn't even have to choose anyone. 
God does choose some to save out of that larger subset. The question is, the us. What kind of people did God choose to save? The lovable, the worthwhile, the ones who have the most to offer him, the ones that are most humble, the ones who are good, the ones who smell nicest, the ones who have, you know, done the most for humanity. How did God choose? Who did God choose? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. And that word calling means calling out people from a group. And in context, um, it is almost synonymous with, you could say it's the human side of God's choosing. <clears throat> from our perspective, his choosing looks like a calling. Call, calling us to come out of that group to which we must obey. For consider your calling, brothers, sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God deliberately chose those who are unchoosable. That is the point of God chose us. God chose specifically those that no one would choose. I mean, you know, you're a kid on a kickball team, and you pick the biggest guy. You pick the guy that looks like he kicks cans all day long. You're forming a team in your job, and you look through resumes, and do you, go, do you look for the guy that doesn't have a high school degree, that has no experience in sales, who doesn't even speak whatever language that everyone's doing the business in? No, you don't. It's very natural for us to think that way, and in those contexts, you're right to do that. But you know how God wants to glorify himself? You know how God maximizes glory to himself? is by choosing exactly those who have nothing to offer so that he can be that which we need. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 100% of it. Not just, well, this guy is about 5% sanctification, that guy over 10, 10%. So if I choose him, you know, God's saying, I, I got to fill in 90% of that. You know, but that's, that's better than the guy who only has 5% sanctification. Is that how God wants to glorify himself? He wants to glorify himself by being everything to you. And the people that are most going to be vessels of his glory are the ones who are the least, the poorest, the foolish, the low, the despised. And it's clear here, so that the one who boasts would boast in the Lord. 
I mean, I, I think everyone kind of supposes that like a, pastors have a certain talent for teaching or for, you know, being good with people, um, for having a sense of, you know, commitment and so on. But I can tell you, I have nothing apart from God. I am confident that if I was not a Christian, I would be one of the worst people you ever met. Because on the surface of it, I would seem very much like a good, decent human being. But when people aren't looking, I would be working my own plans and purposes and designs, sinful, horrible ones. I just know there but for the grace of God go I. There is nothing I would say that I have that is good about me, that is not 100% from God. And yet, of course, anything distracting or evil or wicked, I'd say that is all of me because I was born a sinner. That is something I I think has been missing because we live in an age where it's, you know, self-esteem and and ego, and self-actualization, and you need to be the best human you can be, and blah, blah, blah. But isn't the most hopeful message that even if you are a really awful human being that's messed up in so many ways, that other people have, have done evil things to you, you've done evil things, you feel empty, hollow, messed up, broken, have nothing to offer God, isn't it a hope that God says, perfect, <laughs> that's the kind of person I like to choose so that I can be God to them, because I am. Because guess what? The, the people in the positions of most power, most riches, most fame, they need God too, because all of that stuff does not go with them into the judgment when they die. They will go into the ground as naked as they came into the world, and none of that will count for anything in the eyes of God. God chose, deliberately chose those who are not you, who you would choose. If, if I were to make a team, let's, let's put it another way. Uh, I'm a pastor here, supposedly. Um, I want to start a ministry um, at this church. So I want to recruit who? You know, I'm going to do ministry in Irvine. I want the gospel to go forth. So who should I be looking for? right? Who would you want me to look for? Would would you ever suggest to me, propose to me, you know, you should pick the worst people here that that seem the least qualified, the most destitute, poor, have nothing to offer. Even as a pastor, you wouldn't suggest that. Now, again, I'm not saying that, you know, you take the least qualified people and you do a job with the least qualified. That's not the point. It's just that is how we think. I'm not God, so it's not going to work. But this is exactly the glory of God. Like I said, yeah, that is perfect. That sounds right. And you know what? If we're being honest with ourselves, you know who we really are here trying to do this wonderful work of God's ministry in Irvine? Consider your calling. You're not wise according to worldly standards, not powerful, not of noble birth. You're weak. You are what is low and despised, even the things that are not. And I glory in that because then I got nothing to boast about. Anything good happens here, that is God gets the glory because I, I, 
nobody, <laughs> nothing. Going to seminary gives you any kind. There's plenty of people who went to seminary that, are, that have done these acts of wicked abuse that we're talking about. Seminary guarantees nothing. It is either all of the Lord or it is not. Let me just add this as a last application on what did God choose. He chose us, that there's a deliberateness to God choosing you. Some churches and some doctrines have a more general idea of election, meaning that God kind of has a list. He's got the chosen list and the not chosen list, and essentially that when Jesus died, he just made it possible for you to be on the chosen list, but that God doesn't necessarily know who's on that chosen list. It's, it's sort of like when you become a Christian, your name gets risen, written on this chosen list. He, God, all God does is make it possible for you to be saved. It doesn't guarantee that anyone will be saved. So there's kind of a genericness to who gets saved. You know, even in a way God doesn't know, but again, like God knows after the fact. Oh, he, he chose me. Oh, so he, you know, he decided to follow me, he put his name on the chosen list, and then, you know, before time, again, this is like time-traveling God, God in the past. Okay, I, he's going to choose me, now I choose him. I mean, again, it, it's, it's a little bit of shenanigans, but my point in mentioning that is that God's choosing is not generic, it's not just, I am choosing some people, and maybe you're one of them, or maybe you're not. No, when God chose, he chose the individuals in it. The reason that I chose Paul's conversion as the call to worship in Acts 22 is to demonstrate that God calls not just Paul and the apostles, but every single one of us individually, specifically, purposefully. Election is a doctrine that says God has set a specific, particular love on his beloved children. In other words, God did not make a mistake when he set apart and chose you, if you're a Christian today. You're not just some generic person, Right, as if we were to, if we set out a list on the back table, who wants to be a, a member of this church? And you just sign yourself up, right? And then we don't ever look at it. No, God specifically had you in mind, not as a generic, faceless, you know, potential. Maybe you'd get saved, but specifically because He chose you, He knows you, He made you. Again, very mysterious. Like He made us even with our flaws to love us. You know, and that sounds kind of weird. We're talking about how we're so broken and, and messed up in a way. God made us that way too. That's his sovereignty. But, you know, he, we'll talk about it more when we get to predestination. Uh, we, we have to understand and we have to be okay with how we are experiencing, how we are applying these doctrines. And, and the bottom line is that uh, we are to think this way. That when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just make it possible for people to be saved, he specifically had people in mind that he saved. That, that idea is, is more accurate than to suggest that, well, he, he made it possible for, for, for people to be saved, but he, he wouldn't necessarily know um, per se. No. When he died on the cross, I think it is true to say that he had us specifically, individually in mind. How did he save us? How did he choose us. Ephesians chapter 1 continues on. He chose us in him 
And remember, we said already that this phrase comes up so much in the book of Ephesians. The means by which we are saved, the basis of our salvation, the only hope that anyone can be right with God is through Jesus Christ. The Father chooses, but the Son actually accomplishes, you could say, the transaction. It's like the way your kids might choose a toy, right? And they specifically choose a toy, but who's actually paying for it? Daddy or mommy, so to speak, okay? Don't take that too far. But the idea is the father chooses, but the son is the one, the means by which this can happen. In John chapter 6, this is uh, right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, which is generally seen as a highlight of his ministry, but actually it produces um, opposition. And people, uh, the people end up kind of arguing with Jesus. And as he contends with them, he, t- he says this, uh, John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And it's a wonderful kind of just dovetailing. You know, Jesus doesn't care about issues of, uh, you know, sovereignty and free will and all that. He just speaks as if he's not trying to make some philosophical argument. What does he say? Very clearly. Unless the Father has called you, unless the Father has given you to me, there's no guarantee (laughs) about anything. But those who the Father gave to me, never will they be cast out. They are mine. They're chosen by me. But then what does he say? That same group of people, what are they defined by? Their belief in him. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and he'll raise them up. It's just... No, not even trying to segue that or, you know, make a whole sermon about, you know, predestination and sovereignty and and free will. Just, it's one and the same. Jesus is not trying to make this, you know, feed into our uh, systems about how this all works together. But it's very clear that Jesus believes that he is, this is the focus of this, that he is the only way by which people can have eternal life. There's no salvation outside of Christ. There's no other way to receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places apart from Jesus. No other religion, no other God, no other works. There's no other way in this entire universe to be forgiven of sin and to receive eternal life apart from Jesus Christ saving you. Why does this glorify God that it's only in him that salvation comes and not through this way and that way and the other thing? Well, because if there's only one true God, he cannot contradict himself. There cannot be many ways to please this one God. There cannot be many other avenues to be right with him if there's only one God. I just always remember this Buddhist guy uh, at UCI that came to the book table. He wasn't Asian, so I assume he converted. 
Um, but he came to the evangelistic booth, and really he was just doing a, a drive-by, and that's when people just yell comments to you because they don't want to actually talk to you. So they just yell comments about you know, what, you, you know, what they think about you as they, as they stroll by your table. And this particular guy was saying, you know, kind of over and over again as he's walking by that, you know, everyone, every way is right. Every way is the way to heaven. You're right. Everyone's right. My way is right. Your way is right. Just be true to your own understanding. And he's just saying, you know, you're, you're right. I'm right. Everyone's right. That kind of thing. But, you know, the easiest way to diffuse that thinking, and this is what I yelled at him. I said, what if my way says your way is wrong? What if my way says your way is wrong? Am I still right? Right? It, it, if I'm right, he's wrong. And his statement that every way is right is wrong. It's logically incoherent. Now, unfortunately, in, in some at least um, Buddhist traditions, they have an idea that everything is one and there is a lot of logical contradiction. And they just don't believe that there's anything uh, like logical contradictions. Everything's one. There's no distinction between good and evil, ultimately, right and wrong, moral and immoral, ugly and beautiful. And so in that tradition, it doesn't matter if I'm being incoherent. <laughs> and maybe that's what he really believed. But can there ever be justice if it's true that good and evil are the same, all part of one, this oneness of the universe? Are we really Really, is he really willing to say truly there's nothing evil about abusing children like we mentioned at the beginning? And if he does, I would not want that guy in charge of a toothbrush, let alone a family, let alone, you know, in a community. It's, it's a shocking thing to think that that, that that would make sense to him. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one God. If there's one God, there is one truth. And if there's one truth, there's only one way. It glorifies God that there is only one God and therefore only one way of salvation in him. Now, of course, we talked about the Trinity already, but just in the, the miracle of the Trinity, there within the one Godhead, there's this whole plan of salvation with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but still one God, one way in Him. That's how God chose us, is, is through this one way of salvation. That is the means. When did He choose us? It says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And this is a phrase used multiple times in the Bible. The foundation of the world refers, of course, to the, the creation, you know, Genesis uh, chapter 1. Now, I know it's very hard to think outside of time and space. We're not really able to operate that way because we're kind of bound to time and space. But don't take this when question to exactly specify some date and time. When you talk about the foundation of the world, it's another way of saying before anything existed outside of God. God has always existed. Other things exist dependent upon him. Before the foundation of the world is to say when there was only God, when then there was only him. And again, I don't know how to fathom that. I mean, that's just anyone that's telling you that they can really wrap their minds around a, a God who's eternal, who's always existed, and what anything would be like before there is time and the sun, moon, and stars. It just, they're kidding you. 
So we're talking about before the foundation of the world, you might as well be talking about like in the mind of God, in the purpose of, of God, and you can't really, really get your brain around that. But, but the point of him saying this is that the way things are now was set up before the way things are now. In other words... God had a plan, a very specific purpose for everything before anything. God is not one, in other words, who is reacting and responding to things that are happening in this world. Sometimes it's called process theology or open theism. This is the idea that God is just as surprised as you are when stuff happens. (laughs) Oh, I can't believe that just happened right now. I guess I'll have to, you know... Plan B, plan C. It, it, is, it, it is something, if I was being very generous with people who believe that, they want to make God very real and relational. And the argument is, how can you relate to a being that, that already knows that everything that's going to happen has a plan for everything? That feels kind of fake, right? How can we really have a relationship with someone who knows everything and uh, knows how it's going to plan out. He made you, actually, and so he knows all the things you're going to say and do, and actually he's the one that plotted that out. And, and, and I can understand the desire for people to say, it just makes God more personal. To imagine him as being just as surprised as you are that your, your, your child has cancer or that your parents died in a car accident or that war broke out or there's a famine and now when you pray to him, you're kind of, you're, you are praying and relating to him to try and get him to do something that he wants to do, that he is reacting to just like you are. But the, the problem is, is the Bible just doesn't really depict God that way. And I, there are so many passages, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about predestination, uh, which will be next week or the next time I'm preaching. I think it's next week. Um, we'll talk about it more then. But understand, when you say before the foundation of the world that you were chosen, this is not any hint or suggestion that God is reacting to things he foresaw happening and therefore he laid it out. I mean, that's just a weird kind of a mental loop to make. You know, God is, God is like the choosing thing. Like God saw us choose him, and so now he's going to choose us because he saw us choose him. But who ordained the circumstances that my parents would meet and even create me? Well, God, right? Like how far back does that go? God ordaining, well, you know, in order for my parents to, you know, have created me, you know, their parents need to create them, right? And you keep going back and back. How far back do you end up going with that kind of logic? Well, all the way back to the beginning. And so you're to the point where where you were just playing kind of games, trying to free God from a dilemma, that he doesn't try to get out of himself. So why are we trying to free him from a situation? Rather than start thinking about that, the Bible just paints a very clear picture. You relate to God personally. He's imminent. He's there with us. He knows our sorrows and sufferings. David, when he wrote the Psalms, there's no hint of, well, just because God is some eternal, you know, God that's outside of our minds that he couldn't talk to him as a father, as a shepherd, as a friend. And yet at the same time, David respected God's sovereignty and the fact that he's in control of all things, even the hearts of his enemies. No 
David had no problem doing that. And it, it's probably more that we, he'd have a bigger understanding of God that can encompass both of those ideas than that we need to try and um, go hard one way or the other. Oh, God is just very personal to the point where he re- reacts and responds to, to life just like I do. Us being chosen is part of his plan of redemption. But God had, and so we are to understand God has a purpose and plan that he set out before he ever spoke the words, let there be light. Now, how does it glorify God that the plan was set from the beginning? Well, it glorifies God because there's nothing happening outside of his plan. He gets the most glory because this is all, God's not guessing, he's not frustrated, he doesn't have to go to plan B or plan C. God can be trusted because he doesn't make mistakes That's a very, very big God that can do all those things. I can plan, I can purpose, but I can't make it not rain. You know, on a day I have a party outside. No, God is the only one who cannot be frustrated in his designs and endeavors because he is God. And it glorifies him more that he is sovereign and in control even of the things that are going on than to suggest there are things outside of his control. Why did God choose us? Lastly, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holy means set apart, sacred. Blameless means without any fault or sin. The picture here is that God's intention is to undo the effects of sin in our lives. God's goal in everything, from creation and the fall, from the frustration and dominance of sin in the world that we see now, to the sacrifice and redemption of Jesus Christ, is ultimately to restore us to a right relationship with God in purity. No cause for shame or guilt, no reason for fear or worry, but complete wholeness and holiness, mind and body and soul. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. Paul again tells the Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you, same word, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say holiness and blameless, but they're the same thing then, right? Because he's talking about the purpose of our choosing here in 2 Thessalonians. Purpose of our choosing in Thessalonians, the glory of Jesus Christ. The purpose of our being chosen in Ephesians is holiness and blameless. What does that mean? To be holy and blameless is to have a glory like the Lord. In other words... It's all about God. The only way we can share, God is wanting to glorify himself. That's a purpose for all things. But in his desire to glorify himself, he does this amazing thing. He says, I want to share that glory with you. This is a way that I'm going to be glorified. This is the way I choose to be glorified is in sinners also being like me sharing my glory, my nature with them. 
And the only way we can share that glory of God is if we are like God. So God's intent and purpose in choosing us is to make us like him. God is God-centered. He is the source of every good and right and beautiful thing. So the most kind, most wonderful, most joyful, most glorious, most beautiful thing God can do, if God is the source of every good, beautiful, wonderful thing, is to make us like him. And we can't be like him in our own power and will. We can only be like him if he enables us, if he calls us, if he chooses us, if he predestines us. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. You're familiar with these verses. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. To the praise of his glorious grace. That's the, pur- that's the purpose. I think there is a certain subtlety that we can replace God being God-centered with God being man-centered. As if our well-being is his greatest good. The the reason he made everything was to uh, elevate us. It's not. And it's not that we are not elevated. It's not that we're not glorified. It's so subtle. But God is God-centered. And the way that he can make much of us is only by making us more like him, not making us his idol. Not to suggest that God makes an idol of humanity. It will do anything for us. Well, does God, did God, the marvel, the wonder of God doing everything for his own glory and purpose is that we participate, that he shares it. Not that he like gives it to us to the diminishment of himself. God is God-centered, but in his God-centeredness, he serves us, loves us, saves us. The doctrine of election says God chose us for himself, for his own reasons, not for something inherently worthy or good to us. The way that God stays God-centered is by choosing those who ought not really to in any way be able to glorify God in and of themselves so that when God does choose to serve Really what we're saying when he chose us is that he's choosing to serve, love, save us despite the fact that we don't deserve any of it, any of his spiritual blessings. And that maximally glorifies how kind, glorious, and good he really is and makes God God-centered to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, I know there's a lot of unanswered questions. And I know you're already thinking, well, what about this verse? What about that verse? And what about this passage and that passage? I, I, I get it. The simplest reading of the scriptures, again, is that we have to affirm everything I just said. I think it's biblical. I think it's warranted. And also affirm whatever, you know, counter scriptures you have. Well, you know, free will and, you know, what about all these things? And I can almost guarantee you, I, I almost will bring it up in predestination, but in John... 
In the Gospel of John, almost every chapter has some reference to what is happening is to fulfill the scriptures. Even, even Judas betraying Jesus is simultaneously an act of his own, but also a predetermined one. You just, you can't get away from that both and. So likely if you come up with a bunch of other scriptures, uh, I'm just going to yes, okay. But don't, you can't affirm that and also diminish this. So we have to affirm both without diminishing the other. Um, so I know you're already thinking of, of different ways to, <laughs> to discuss this or tell me what your perspective is. But let me just say, I hope that everything I said today, you can affirm because it is what the scriptures say about our, our election. It doesn't contradict any kind of personal responsibility for sin. And that is the situation that you're in if you're not a Christian this morning, is that you stand on your own two legs. That is to say, in your sin and your shame and your guilt before a holy God who will judge you. And yet, the Bible calls everyone to repent of their sins and put faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, on the one hand, you cannot do that apart from God's choosing you. On the other hand, that is simply the call of Scripture, that you would repent. I don't know who's chosen. You may not know. But I know that if you put faith in Jesus Christ, you don't get the glory he does. I know that if you choose to put your faith in Jesus now, you will be able to fulfill the purpose for which you were made, the glory of God. And that your life, it holds no meaning apart from that glorious purpose, above any other achievement that you have, above family and, and work and and. And all the things and all the treasures and all the junk that we heap up around yourself, you're not made for that. You're made for him. And he's calling you to set aside your sin, put your faith in the son of God who chose to suffer and die for our sins and who God raised from the dead. If you're a Christian this morning, again, just one of those things where hopefully our ideas of God just get a little bit bigger that our glory and praise of him becomes a little bit more richer and deeper, even as we wrestle with the, the different you know, paradoxes of scripture, um, that in trying to hold them all together, our soul gets a little bit uh, more stretched out. And we have a few more things to praise God for. I hope that that is the case for you. And please, if you have any questions, I do want to talk about it. Don't, don't get me wrong. I know I'm kind of poking fun a little bit about folks who want to argue with me about <laughs> these things, but I do want to hear. I do want to talk. Um, what the scriptures say. So please come to me or Pastor Chris or being about those things. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. You're good. You are beyond what I can think or imagine. And uh, I really, I just want to give you the glory. I, I don't know what else to say. I don't know why you would choose me. I can certainly say that uh, even if I did uh, chose you, which I did, um, the circumstances of my life, even my own existence were not something I chose. So is it not truly all of you? And is not all of this truly to glorify you. I'm okay with that. This life, just, what am I really clinging to? If I'm clinging to, you know, I chose or, or, or any theological debate, what am I really saying when I would choose to um, make a bigger deal about arguing than glorifying? And so, Lord, help me uh, to focus rightly. Help me to find the humility and grace to know you and to love you and to follow you. That's, that's what you're calling me to. It's not complicated. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for each one here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.